on fire. Uh, this is the most important session that you will sit through at this <laughs> festival. And you happy few will get some pretty incredible news about our world and about this country, which, as I learned from Stephen Pine, Professor Emeritus at Arizona State University, um, who just took a bit of time out from writing a fire history of North America to write a fire history of Australia, that our continent was shaped over countless ages to not only need fire, but to want it. We are a country, a continent that wants to be on fire. And I want you to hold that thought in your mind while you hear these three speak. Immediately to my left is Pete Watts, who, if you have any kind of health condition um, or emergency or are being attacked by anyone, he can help you. <laughs> So if you need to have a heart attack, please do so now. So Pete's been uh, involved with the emergency services over decades. He's been a police officer in the Serious, serious Incidents Unit in New South Wales. Sorry, what's it? As a sergeant, a police should handle serious incidents, yeah. He has been a fiery, most importantly, to our um, discussion. For the last 10 years, uh, you've been working six months of the year as a volunteer firefighter, yep. and Pete's had some fairly close shaves and some fairly um, harrowing uh, experiences, which, you know, I mean, I mean I, we'll see what he's happy to talk about later on. Immediately to Pete's left is Chloe Hooper, who many of you will probably recognise. Um, back in 2002, she wrote a little novel called Child's Book of True Crime, which... Um, you know, made quite a splash. And from there, she decided she'd move into non-fiction and wrote a little bit book called The Tall Man, which was one of the non-fiction titles of the decade. She wrote a wonderful gothic novel after that called The Engagement. And then, most recently, a book called The Arsonist, which I commend to you and which is as a book about the psychology of what creates fire and about the human and ecological effects of fire is uh, a signal text in our culture. And because Stephen Pine um, uh, has insisted to me privately in, in emails before this event, he said, you've got to understand the interface between nature and culture when it comes to fire. Fire is, 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 is not just something that happens in the forest when there's no one around. It's about our story too. I wanted to start with you, Stephen, as, as the, the, the theoretician of fire, but I should preface this by saying Stephen is not only an academic with an interest in fire. He's someone who early on in life had a formative experience. I wonder if you could tell us what happened to you just after you left school and the first job you got as a labourer out at um, the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon on the South Rim, which is where 90% of the visitors go. I was signing my papers, and uh, they parked at a call from one of the uh, members of the North Rim fire crew that he couldn't come, and they wanted to fill that slot as soon as possible. There I was, asked if I wanted to go. What did I know? I was 18. I didn't know the names of the tools. I'd never been to the North Rim, never really worked around fire. 
I said, sure. Um, I did that. It turned out uh, I had the good sense to keep coming back. I did it for 15 seasons altogether, 12 as a crew, crew supervisor, um, which I now regard as the best of all lives and the best of all places. And everything I've written about since then all goes back to that, that uh, singular experience. Um, serendipitous, so I've become a, a kind of a pyromantic, not pyromaniac, uh, kind of chronicler of fire around the world. And uh, I've done other books on Antarctica, the canyon, the Voyager mission that go back to the questions of how do you make sense out of a place like Grand Canyon. So those two, but all of it goes back to those years. Can you uh, expand on the the sort of gesture in the direction of uh, the beginning of the burning bush, your history of Australian fire? Can you tell us what distinguishes our situation on this continent from your North American context? What is it about us that makes us so uh, magnificently, uh, disturbingly fire prone? Well, lots of things came together. And uh, let's be clear, I'm I'm not a scientist. I'm, I was really trained in the humanities. I'm a fire guy. I'm basically a historian. And the, the data that I had, most of my research was done in the mid-'80s, so that reflects it. But in a general sense, we go back to the, the old Gondwana land, the southern uh, great continent. It breaks up. Different places, pieces go to different places. Africa sort of stays put. What will become India rams into Eurasia. Uh, and then two sort of twin fragments spin off. One spirals down to the South Polar region, becomes Antarctica, a continent of ice, and the other wanders off into the Pacific uh, in a convenient place to become a continent of fire. So in my mind, the, those two continents, fire and ice, were paired. Along the way, so that's a very slow geologic process. There's a somewhat faster but still slow uh, evolutionary process of adjusting to these new kinds of climates and circumstances. Australia was also a geologically quiescent uh, continent, so it's subject to uh, relentless erosion, uh, whereas, say, North America is constantly being renewed by new parts ramming into it, lots of geological activity, uh, glaciation, and so forth. Um, and then uh, it settles down into uh, various climatic zones that are very uh, amenable to fire. And what you really need climatically is a pattern of wetting and drying. It's got to be wet enough to grow stuff and then dry enough to allow it to burn. If it's always wet or always dry, no fires. You still need some ignition, and that's sort of the loose cannon. The rest of fire is a creation of the living world. I mean, life created the oxygen, life created the fuel. Um, the chemistry of fire is fundamentally a biochemistry. It simply takes apart what photosynthesis puts together. You know, when it occurs in us, we call it respiration. When it occurs in the open world, we call it we call it fire. That's how fundamental it is. Um, and then, the big change when humans come, a fire-wielding creature, um, a species monopolist, now over fire. That's what we do. Uh, it's our ecological signature then fire can become, fire can occur whenever the, the pieces are aligned, which is much more often. And then Europeans come, fire begins scrambled, and then the other big phase change is when uh, humanity shifts from burning 
living landscapes, which are filled with sort of ecological uh, buffers and baffles. You can't burn all the time. Uh, there are constraints uh, to uh, burning lithic landscapes. We take stuff out of the geologic past, what had once been living landscapes, now lithified into stone. We begin burning that. And these are completely without restraint. You can burn day and night, summer and winter, drought and deluge, what does it matter? So the old quest, human quest for fire had always been a search for more things to burn because fire was power for us. Uh, our environmental impact either directly or indirectly happened through fire. And um, now that becomes unbounded. And the problem is now one of sinks. There's not a there's not a place for all this junk to go that we're burning. So we're unhinging uh, atmosphere, biosphere, the oceans, uh, even our own habitable spaces. So that, to my mind, that in a nutshell is the larger story. A great example of that, uh, the Black Saturday fires, the number of fires from power plants, power lines failing, coming out of uh, coal-fired plants, impacting with the way we live on the land and that living landscape. Yes, of course. Your, I'm sorry. Your, your, no, your, your recent so California fires were started again by yeah. failure of an electrical line, I gather. But I mean, what you point to is you're saying it's the most natural thing in the world and I almost felt calm for a moment. Then you talk about <laughs> breathing. the human agents and the kind of forcing effect you're describing. But we're both, it seems, the active agents using it, but we're also the victims because... Mm -hmm. We're infinitely more populous species than we were. We now live, are more likely to live at the interface of the urban and rural in, in the Western world. And, you know, just moving on to yeah. Chloe here, um, the, Chloe's story about the Black Saturday fires are about the human cost of fire. But what fascinates me, you should know that Chloe quotes Stephen extensively towards the end of her book, although I hadn't attached the name to the person until we were walking over and Chloe explained. So theoretically, uh, Stephen's work really informs your own. But I wanted to ask you, Chloe, specifically about what you came to understand about um, the human cost of fire when it takes place under those kind of circumstances that were Black Saturday? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's devastating um, when you read through, the, the as I did, the police brief of evidence and hear people's um, or stories about um, a firestorm coming towards them. And um, I, I've tried, you know, in the book to actually sometimes I'll just take one sentence and I've sort of strung them together to get a sense as, as both Stephen and, you know, obviously Tim no or Pete knows about um, what it's like to have that sort of bearing down on you, uh, the, the sound, the smell, the heat. But I'm so struck by um, Stephen's line about um, fire is power because uh, in the fire that I write about is was lit by somebody who in their life actually sort of generally felt fairly powerless. Mm. Um, he was someone who was sort of a misfit, um, had been badly bullied. Most people tried to avoid him mm. and yet uh, his fire 
makes him, you know, by extension, kind of all, all powerful and hugely powerful. And I mean, I think your book is also about him not even being able to face up to the power that he unleashes. Yes. For those um, few foolish people who haven't yet raced out and bought a copy <laughs> of The Arsonist, could you explain in brief the circumstances that created, obviously, the most storied and distressing fire experience in Australia in, in the recent era? Well, on, on Black Saturday, there were uh, hundreds of fires broke out around the state. Five of those fires were fatal. It initially appeared that three had three of them were deliberately lit. We now know it was it was only two. Um, it's not that's too many. But um, of the 173 people who died on that day, 161 died due to um, failures of of the power grid and um, badly maintained power lines. Um, badly maintained uh, sort of trees near or, or ar- arborist or sorry poorly trained um, folk who were looking at the trees around and not recognizing that some were dead and were going to fall down I mean this is power companies uh, saving you know saving money and I guess the sort of uh, I wrote about a fire that took place in Churchill in Victoria's coal country. And to get to Churchill, where Brendan Sokolok, the the arsonist in my story, lived, I had to drive past a power plant, a coal-fired power plant, which is the dirtiest in the OECD until it was closed down two years ago. And so there was a sort of strange irony that I was researching this fire while these smokestacks were continuing to... Um, you know, blow out emissions which made for more fire-friendly conditions. And, of course, also the power that had started the fires uh, around the state came from most probably this this station. So I guess that then sort of has led me to, to Stephen's work. Pete, uh, I understand that you were also involved in those same fires would you like to share with the audience your your own take and your own experience of that particular moment in that particular part of the world? The fires that I was involved in uh, weren't the last Victorian fires, but the ones back in 83, referred to as Ash Wednesday. And I'm a member of the Rural Fire Service of New South Wales. We're unpaid. Um, to get into our brigade, you've got to be over 65, had at least one life-threatening operation... and be either impaired visually or can't hear very well we try and put somebody younger on the truck who can actually read the maps and hear the radio (laughs) so the thing is that uh, when you do get in we can promise that you'll get to work 16 hours straight without a meal during urgent situations but I'm digressing and I shouldn't treat this with any humour but you do have to have a sense of humour to be a firefighter at you know, 70 or 75 or some of ours or even 80 when they're doing 16 hours straight. And it always annoys me when society says, oh, you've got to be young and beautiful to be really a contributing member. But next time we have bad fires, which will be in the next few weeks, look at the faces of those people. There are many of your faces. Anyone here in the uh, firefighting service? Got one? Yep. There's, there's the face of a firefighter. <laughs> Unpaid. <laughs> Probably unfed when you went out. Yep. <laughs> 
<laughs> these tents make me feel so much at home. You know, this <laughs> you do a five-day deployment, and um, in the last few months, I went and fought the fires in Queensland. Then it was down to Tasmania, then back up to northern New South Wales. Mm. And my wife wasn't happy, of course, but we did get to have Valentine's Day together, which also marked our wedding anniversary. And the next day on the fire truck and up to Tenerfield. But going back to fires, it was 83. Uh, I was a police officer stationed down at Corowa on the Murray River. And one of my jobs was to go over the border because I was also a special constable in the state of Victoria to recover the bodies of 13 firefighters who had been caught in two trucks and burnt to death. And I still have the vivid memory of one charred body with the arm around the other and it was father and son. So the whole upper Beaconsfield Fire Brigade was wiped out. That's the sort of things we remember. And I guess I'm not prone to telling war stories, but I do remember an incident at a place called Fortis Creek, which is west of Grafton. And one of the things we dread as firefighters is a thing called a fire overrun. That means your truck is enveloped in flames and you cook inside it. Now, if I said to you, if you had to choose between being burned to death or drowning, think about it, what would the fate be? Hands up for drowning. Yeah, I mean, being burnt to death has been one of those historically horrible things that people Stephen, burn at the Stephen stake. wants to... Okay, right, okay, sorry. <laughs> and <laughs> so the thing is, if you choose drowning, you'll join the SES, State Emergency Service, but if you choose burning, you'll join the RFS, Rural Fire Service. So the thing is that that fire brought to my attention how devastating fires can be, but when it came to the Victorian fires, I joined a year after that, but our brigade were down there on the second day. I remember some of our members are only 17 years old, our firefighters, and they said... The memories are burned into them of driving down the roads and seeing cars with burnt bodies in them. And so they go on about police and ambulance seeing horrible things. They forget 17-year-old kids see horrible things. But getting back to Fortis Creek, typical situation. You start the day out, there's three of you in the fire truck. It's about 10 o'clock in the morning and you're bringing aboard a young firefighter who's still doing his HSC, but he's got the day off and it's his very first fire. And he's so excited. He's in the back seat. So I, as the crew leader, and, and my mate Pete Campbell, are promising him he'll get to finally fight a bushfire. Brand new, uniform on. What we didn't realise, within the next few hours, we'd be fighting for our lives. And what happened, we're on a ridge, and that's one place fire trucks don't want to be, is on a ridge. And I can see nodding heads for those who had to be out there on the fire ground. But we're with the national parks, and some bad decisions are made by these people. And we said... As we watched the fire burning down one side of a valley, we should light up and back burn back into it. And they said, no, we can't do that. And we said, you're crazy, because we have more experience of fighting fires than they do. And sure enough, the fire hit the bottom of the valley and it just rushed up the other side and we were there in its front. Now, this is a crown fire. A crown fire is when it's up in the treetops. It's a wall of roaring. Now, a fire is a living creature. It's got a spirit. And this time... It's got out of the cage, and it's savage. It's out to kill. So the word came, there are about five trucks on the ridge, get out of there as quick as you can. But your crew, Golmrad 7, go down, there's five houses that got to be protected. So we turned off from our group, and we're going down, and suddenly as we came around a corner, we realised the fire had jumped the road. Now remember, it's as high as this tent, and we're trapped. It's coming at us from the side, it's jumped the road behind us. You do get flashbacks to what you've seen, and here's this young bloke in the back seat whose mother and father have entrusted his life into our hands. And I'm thinking, we're gone. But as the fire came towards us, 
we realised we had a slight breeze behind us. The only hope we had was to get out of that truck with fire, you know, the torches that have the fire drip torches, and burn back into it. Now, the heat's so intense, the side of the truck is melting. And so are we, literally. But fortunately, we were covered up very well. So we lit up. I always remember young Mitch, 17 years old, still doing his high school certificate. Through the smoke, he's burning along the edge of the road. The flames are going back. And the only other hope we had then was I'd had the pump turned on at the back of the truck because we had these sprays over the cabin. You know, the water comes down. And we were lucky we had a full tank of water. We jumped back in the truck and I remember turning to the driver and saying, I think we should put our flash hoods on. These are things that, you know, cover your whole head, as well as rugging up and putting everything else on and gloves. And I thought to myself, well, when I burn, at least my face might be preserved so they can show me in a coffin. These are thoughts that go through your mind. Now, when I looked around, young Mitch is sitting in the back seat and he's still got the drip torch in his hand. <laughs> Little things to remember when you're in a situation where you don't think you're going to live. And the whole thing was... Fortunately, it wasn't burning. It at least had the sense to put it out. And I remember thinking to myself, well, it won't matter. Once the fire hits us, maybe it'll be a quicker death. And at the same time, a helicopter was overhead with a big bucket of water. And we're sending up radio signals to the helicopter saying, drop the water on us, drop the water on us. And he's coming back saying, I can't even see you. Yet he was directly overhead. The smoke was that thick. And the world is just a mass of orange. And you can feel the heat coming through into the truck. And you're sitting there, and you don't even have time to think about your life flashing before your eyes. You're just thinking, how stupid is this Mitch with the drip torch in the back seat? <laughs> and then it happened. Suddenly, the orange started to go down. And then we realised we'd beaten the fire. We'd burnt back into it just enough to stop it from actually enveloping us with flames. I remember we got out, and I grabbed the old camera, and here's my mate, Pete Campbell, who'd been fighting fires for 15 years, and he's standing there with his flash hood on, standing in the middle of the dirt track. And he said, that's the first time in 15 years I ever had to put that on. And we lived. And the first thing I said to Mitch was, don't tell your mum and dad what happened today. <laughs> <laughs> and the worst part was, he couldn't get back to the high school the next day before the high school said to boast everyone, he lived through a fire overrun. <laughs> the truck didn't. It was partly melted. And his mother and father found out because I said, what she's going to do if she finds out, she's going to burn your uniform and never let you come out again. <laughs> that young man is now in the army as a soldier. And I thought if ever anyone wanted a reference, I would have written one for him. <laughs> so that's, that's an incident of what can crop up. But it was quick thinking by us to burn back into it because the good book, the little manual we have, it says, jump in the truck and turn on the water. But that won't always work. Sometimes man can outthink the beast that's coming towards him. And it was because we put that fire back into it. Uh, so that's probably the only war story I'll tell about firefighting because I'll probably discourage a few volunteers in the future. <laughs> but I do know um, from speaking to other firefighters, every firefighter will tell you a time that they didn't think they were going to come home. And on an average, we lose around about five to ten emergency service volunteers every year. They don't get the headlines that professionals get. But I will tell you now, those volunteers, even though they don't get paid, are as highly trained as anyone. And people like the CFS, the CFA, the RFS are all trained to the highest standard. Now, I've given Professor Pine one of our little Bibles. And in that book, it's got everything you want to know about God and fire and staying alive. <laughs> it's a good book. <laughs> I'm so grateful to Pete for giving us a human story of what it is like. 
because this story is only going to become uh, more broadly known to all of us. And what Stephen could perhaps help us with now is a sense of projecting into futurity what happens when the kind of forcing effects that you described at the outset of our conversation combined with increased temperatures, lengthier fire seasons and a more complex and densely populated urban-rural interface. What happens to us in the decades to come as mm. victims rather than necessarily the conscious agents of fire? What future do you see? Well, the future depends whether you see yourself as victims or as uh, positive agents. And, uh, you know, we, we have awful stories of fires that have gone bad uh, and tragic stories. Um, this is the 10th anniversary of Black Saturday. But let's also remember that humanity is what it is because of fire. And some of our most intimate sentiments are around candles, hearth fires, practically a definition of home, light a bonfire, people are going to gather. We've always used fire to make our world habitable. The choice now is whether we want to use fire to create a, a, a more habitable world for ourselves and all the other creatures around us, or whether we will continue what we might call a kind of Promethean trend and uh, use fire in uh, an improper way to make what I come to think of as a fire age. And I use that... Um, I originally coined the idea of a, of, of a pyrocene as a kind of one-off metaphor just to sort of say, you know, the fire story is bigger than just climate change and some of the stuff we, we think about, that we are changing the whole planet uh, by our fires, all the varieties of fires, and we are creating the equivalent of an ice age with fire. And so we can begin thinking about that magnitude, not only directly, but you know, a lot of uh, the ice age effects were periglacial. They were associated indirectly with sea levels and things. All the peripyric phenomenon. We have created a fire world. This is our doing, and we can begin to undo it. But fire, uh, fire integrates lots of things. It's a reaction. It's not a substance. It's different than ice in that respect. So that also means because there are lots of things that are being integrated by fire, there are lots of things we can do, small things, uh, to reform. So I think with fire, you basically have four general strategies. You can just leave it to nature, whatever's going to happen. There are places where that's the wisest choice. Um, you can substitute your fires for whatever fires nature or arsonists or accident are going to throw at you. You can change the fire environment, that is essentially the vegetation, and how you occupy that vegetation. So whatever fire comes at you is something you may control, or you can try to suppress it. You can try to exclude fire. And that works in cities. It doesn't work in the countryside, and it only makes things worse. So those are the general strategies we can take. Um, we have been a fire creature all of our existence. It's defined us. Um, I find it bizarre that we would somehow refuse that identity. I mean, other animals knock over trees and dig holes in the ground and eat plants. We do fire. 
So it's up to us to finally accept that responsibility. And part of what I think people like myself are trying to do is to show that this is not a bizarre thing in a way. It is an inflection of a very long story of ourselves using fire for good or ill. It's a, it's a very beautiful idea that what you're, I, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is here is the primal human technology. It's the technology that we harnessed that allowed us to become what we've become. But what you're saying is it's not about the technology being inherently good or bad. It's that our use of it has right. been thoughtless or irresponsible or outsized. So prior to European arrival, fire stick farming um, by Indigenous Australians was a responsible use of fire. And you're saying that our current um, you know, kind of, uh, set of practices, which right up to the combustion of, of, <laughs> of, 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 of dead dinosaur juice, is improper. You know, we, we are a fire creature. Um, you know, we got small guts and big heads because we learned to cook food. Mm. And we went to the top of the food chain because we learned to cook landscapes. Mm -hmm. Now we've become a geologic force because we've begun to cook the planet. And at that point, we're out of control. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we were... <laughs> We were, we were saying before, I mean, even the phones we hold are, um, you know, made with, with products that have been sort of, you know, mined and we've got little sort of pieces of, of, of fire in our hands that we are now kind of dependent on, I mean, just through the kind of processes that made these and we drive around on four wheels and controlled explosions. It's going to be I, hard to dial it back, but, but, we're the, but the, we, we, can, we, can make a, we can sign something today and start. <laughs> the pledge. Um, when you were talking in the outset of your history of Australian fire, Stephen, about you were almost apologising for the, the rhapsodic approach you had, even though it's obviously very rigorous and grounded in the, the best research you could get hold of, because you said that fire is known to make us not quite rational, as anyone <laughs> who's sort of stared into a fire and hasn't been able to organise their thoughts um, has felt. And I was going to ask you, Chloe, I mean, what it seemed to me you'd done a series of case studies where you drilled down into the experience of multiple um, figures who had either survived or not survived that particular fire, was your sense that in the midst of an actual encounter with a major fire that people didn't, you, you, you can't actually think rationally. I know that there are some highly trained people who can think very quickly, but, but the rationally. civilians, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, what did you discover about the psychology of the individual faced with fire? Well, um, I suppose my book focuses, you know, primarily or, or it begins with um, the Victoria Police Arson Squad. So um, I, I guess their experience is actually trying to read through a uh, fire scene of, of 34,000 hectares and Pete mentioned he's had experience with as a, as a fire investigator and to sort of work through that, um, you know, blackness to find... Uh, you know what we're actually sort of in the end in this in the Churchill fires um, case uh, uh, two areas that were uh, two square meters um, and that led them to believe that this had been deliberately lit but yes I mean I think that we now 
I think Black Saturday has changed the way that we think about how we would respond if we were under threat. I think far less people now believe that they could stay and defend their house. And, you know, the detective's experience was that there was, you know, people who um, died because they drove away and actually their house still stands and, you know, um, if you zigged in one direction, you survived and it was just completely zagged the other way, you didn't. And it was um, uh, completely arbitrary and, and random as life is, you know. So a, a logical response to the fires wasn't necessarily going to save you in that instance. No, was, no. There's a lot of chance involved as well. That's right. But I, I'm really struck by the idea that it is a sort of, you know, uh, that, that the fires are a, a social and environmental phenomena that because, I mean, even in the, you know, this sort of particular case study um, of, of Brendan Sokolok that he kind of, he grew up in a, um, in an area where the coal, he, he it was, the, these are the biggest brown coal fields in the world. And he, you know, all around underground was this um, combustible, flammable, material when it's taken out of the ground being burnt and uh you know we're literally breathing in those vapors of of instability and here here we here we there we were well i mean we we've talked a little bit about brendan but i just want to ask you pete um uh two years ago when i i'm live in southern tasmania in the country and my local fire station's about four minutes drive away and it got burnt down by an arsonist, my local fire station, by one of the firemen who had joined the service because he liked fire and he couldn't help himself but have a go. It was incredibly expensive. You sort of you laugh and then you think $2 million later. Um, but, Pete, I wanted to ask you if you had developed... Any theories about individuals and fire? How, have you come across people like the guy who burnt down my fire station? <laughs> <laughs> Not in my brigade. <laughs> I'm just going to emphasise something here too, that uh, whenever we go to a fire ground, we're driving in there, it's usually in you know, rural areas. If we see a vehicle, we automatically note its number and time and a description of the persons in it because later on, that bit of information handed to our fire investigators might be vital. So it's just something we do automatically, especially if it's a trail bike. And the other thing, too, is that uh, we go looking for what they call POI, point of ignition. And you'll often see that out in the bush if the wind's blowing and you get on it quick enough. And we have our own investigators within the rural fire service. Uh, the one we have at the moment is actually a, a serving police officer and also a member of the rural fire service. Um, with arsonist... Uh, we have that term pyromaniac. Uh, we know that we've got to be careful when we recruit people into our service that we don't get them. But unfortunately, like many occupations, for example, pedophiles are attracted to certain occupations and they get away with it. So we will keep getting those people. And just even recently we had a case in New South Wales where a member of our rural fire service, remember there's about 60,000 rural fire service members, was caught out starting fires because his brother worked with Fire and Rescue. Now, Fire and Rescue are not rural fire service. Fire and Rescue are people who are paid to go out. 
and his brother was with the fire and rescue. So he decided if he went out and lit fires, his brother would get called out and he'd get paid. So at least he had a motive. <laughs> anyway, he got caught out himself. <laughs> so that might answer a bit about pyromaniacs who come from all sorts of backgrounds. Well, we should add that, that Brendan Sokolov also attempted and I think even managed for a, a period of time to join the local fire brigade. Can you remind me, Chloe? Yeah, he, um, he did. I, I, you know, I think that the sort of statistics seem to suggest that although it's incredibly rare for, um, for firefighters to become arsonists, it, it is an uncommon for arsonists to have some connection to, to the fire services. Um, and, you know... But people light fires for a variety of reasons, and I guess another sort of point in terms of that of mm. of the social kind of nature and the environmental coming together is that arson psychologists have found that uh, more fires are deliberately lit where eucalypt forests meet unemployment. Mm. So um, there we are. Makes sense. The reason why I'm labouring the point about the psychology of arson, because what Stephen has taught us today is these things can be scaled up. Here are you three, rational agents, intelligent women and men with some experience or some deep thinking about this situation. And yet what we find when we reach the, the level of politics uh, on the level of the state and on the level of the globe, that irrational... Um, ideas about that kind of that larger kind of fire that you're gesturing towards them seem to be in place. I mean, we look at the contemporary politics of firefighting in America. Could you explain to those who might not, you know, be as uh, aware the kind of problems that have cropped up in recent years in your sure. part of the world that have made, you know, fire more likely and, and harder to actually fight? Well, first, uh, uh, I don't think um, logic is a default setting for human beings, so we just have to assume that. <laughs> uh, the United States is an interesting situation. About 50 years ago, we realized, this is quite apart from climate change or any of the, those concerns, uh, that we'd made a, a bad choice 100 years ago and gone into a kind of full suppression model, almost a paramilitary model, and then after World War II in Korea, we had all this war surplus equipment that could be rolled over for mm -hmm. firefighting. So we, we entered a kind of Cold War on fire. The Red mm -hmm. Menace had double meaning at this point. Mm -hmm. And we've realized that, that that was a real mistake. Ecologically, it was a mistake. It was um, counterproductive uh, ecolo yeah, ecologically, and it, it simply made uh, firefighting worse. So... 50 years ago, our National Park Service reformed its policy to put good fire back in. And the National Forest Service, which was the matrix for our national organization, uh, reformed uh, 40 years ago. So this was all well before sort of the current slate of conditions. We think of, well, the, this wildland urban, which is a really stupid term. I wish we could call it urban bush or something else. Uh, was on the slate it, before climate change, before all these others. We realized that we were headed in the wrong direction, and it's been very difficult to reform. Once you've taken fire out of the system, it's like trying to put an extinct species back in. The habitat is not right. What, and, so of those fires that, that, you know, before the suppression, you know, model, 
how, what percentage should you have kept burning? Like, what were, which were the good ones and which were the bad ones? That was a great choice. Uh, that's a great question because it was we, we had a wave of really awful settlement fires. I mean, we're talking an order of magnitude worse in scale and lethality than what we've seen in recent decades. Uh, and that was all powered by logging, slash, and land clearing. And then most of the ignition was by railroads. Locomotives were notorious. So it was a catalyst for the whole thing. Um, and then we were able to wrestle that back uh, into, into shape. But there was a debate. There was a great fire. It's the equivalent, say, of the 1939 fires for Australia, 1910. Um, and at the same time, this fire blew up, killed 78 firefighters, uh, put the Forest Service into debt, nearly bankrupted it, and the rest, a great trauma for the agency. Uh, a debate flared up in California. It was called light burning. And the argument was that this is all wrong, that we need to copy what they called the Indian method. We need to emulate the American Indian and go out there and routinely burn these lower elevations landscapes. And if we did that, uh, we wouldn't have big fires. We won't have diseased and infected forests. And that was beaten down. And we went instead with this other model uh, with the authority of, of science, forestry, European forestry behind it, which was totally incompetent to deal with that scene, as it was in Australia or India or Cape Colony. Uh, so if we had it to live over again, we would have taken the other side. So 50 years later, here we are trying to go, well, you can't go back. Mm. You took that path. You've got to go here from where you are now. That is really hard. It's much, much more complicated. And the space people need to change policy and to change fire culture in that way is gone. We, we don't have the geographic space. We're filling, we've recolonized our rural landscape with houses. We don't have... Uh, the bureaucratic space. We don't have the political space. Fire is now politicized. It's caught up. Our fire policy changes depending whether Democrats or Republicans are fire. Really? <laughs> but very, if the other very, side wants it, we are against on it. Fire, I'm sorry, you really goes, are in trouble. No, this is really yeah. You know, this is this is really kind of nuts. But we're caught up in this kind of thing. And what is happening, however, is that people on the ground recognize we are not getting ahead of this. Too many things are coming at us too fast. Uh, we're not going to be able to um, prepare the land to do everything we need before the big fires come. We're going to work with the fires that are coming at us. And so they've developed this kind of hybrid model. It's sort of half suppression, half prescribed fire. And uh, they're racking up a lot of acres. Mm. And the idea is some of these acres are really too severe. They're damaging. They're not what we would like. But 10 or 15%, okay, I'll take that because we got 70% or maybe 80% was within a range that's better. And the sooner we get these fires back into that system uh, uh, of reasonable, in a reasonable way, the more resilient that system is going to be for what's coming. Because if we wait and putz around for another 20 or 30 years, those fires are going to obliterate it. I'd like to point out that uh, members from my brigade personally have been to California and British Columbia to fight fires last year. So... Uh, the interesting thing is that when we sent our boys over to uh, British Columbia, we got them to teach the Canadians how to play cricket. <laughs> we might have a chance in the future if we can't beat the Poms. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Um, I, we're going to open it to questions from you all uh, in a moment, but I just wanted to ask Pete, as I was listening to Stephen and, and Stephen saying, obviously it's very much context-driven the way that you we could be doing best practice. So, Pete, have you any thoughts about how Australia has its own distinct set of challenges um, that might correspond to what Stephen had to say? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, Stephen's books are known in Australia and I'll recommend them even more because uh, he knows what he's talking about. The thing is that we have a, a different kind of vegetation, you know, the eucalypt, the tea tree, and I can tell you right now, whenever we're in the bush and we see the tea tree there, we know when the flames hit that, it's going to go off because of the oil that comes out. I always remember one time they were fighting a fire just out of Grafton, about 20 kilometres from Grafton, and when the tea tree started burning, they had to close the airport down 20 kilometres away. That's how thick the smoke was because of the fumes. But the um, thing about firefighting, we're looking more and more to Aboriginal practices. And uh, one of the interesting things is some smarter, more intellectual firefighters noticed paintings from the early 19th century done by landscape artists around Victoria. And they said these must have, these paintings, you know, these landscapes have got to be false because it shows almost garden-like conditions in the bush. And when more research was done into it, they found out, no, they were paintings done of the time as if you'd taken a photograph. And because the Aboriginal people were actually cultivating. And we said we were, they're not farmers. Well, there's a definition of a farmer. They were burning off areas so the grass would grow for the wallabies to come, providing food. But over time, we said, no, just let the trees grow back. And now we're paying for it. So the Aboriginal people have known about how to control fire in this continent for thousands of years. And I always remember a wonderful experience I had about three years ago. We went out to a national park to do some hazard reduction, you know, burning away the uh, rubbish. And a couple of Aboriginal ladies from the national parks came in their full regalia and gave us a smoking ceremony. And I thought, this is wonderful. You know, we had the whole ceremony done on us as firefighters in our yellow jackets. That was the year we survived the fire overrun. So call me superstitious. <laughs> but every time I go out, every season I go out to fight fires, I'm looking for that lady who's going to blow some smoke on me. <laughs> but the other interesting thing too is you made me aware the official fire season started on the 1st of August. Traditionally, it starts on the 1st of October. We as firefighters recognise climate change. Now, whether it's caused by man alone or whether it is a natural cycle, we're not going to argue about that. But climate change is here. And the whole thing is... If we're starting on the 1st of August next year, we'll probably be starting on the first day of winter. And last night, when I was back at my accommodation, I got two messages from my brigade. One was, we've got a bad accident out on the Pacific Highway. Now, remember how much it rained last night in Byron Bay? The other message was, we've got a grass fire. And sure enough, it was a big grass fire just down near McLean. So I thought, they're not getting much rain down there. So fires are more constant. I remember going to Mount Macedon, um, College of uh, Counter Disaster Management and I looked up all the records and there is one city that it actually can be burnt to the ground one city in Australia can be burnt to the ground anyone want to hazard a guess which city? Canberra is only second on the list, we almost saw it burnt down <laughs> I don't think many Australians would have missed it though Oh, sorry, sorry, mate. You're working and living in Canberra, aren't you? <laughs> no, no, that's oh, right. Oh, sorry, you... no. Would you request my idea? No, does anyone guess it? Hobart. It's Hobart. Ah, 
Now, I did a, uh, a study on the 67 fires and wrote a paper on uh, that whole incident and what went before, what went during and what went after. Because fires are not just one stage of things burning. There's the conditions that set them up, there's the fire itself, and then, of course, there's the aftermath, which is usually, you know, the uh, restoration and rescue and recovery. So even Sydney today is now being looked at as being a potentially dangerous place to live, especially if you live in the outer suburbs because that interface of civilization with nature. So whereas city people think bushfires, they're just a rural thing. Not in the future. If you're living in Sydney or Canberra or Brisbane, for the matter of fact, you may find your own house threatened by a bushfire because we have leafy suburbs. And Canberra, this is a bit of history for Australia, which I know Professor Pine would be interested in. There was a theory about fire tornadoes. Now, you're all familiar with tornadoes you see in America, you know, those things that come down to the ground and rip up houses and, and places like that. Well, there was a theory that could there be a fire tornado? And we proved it, yes, and it was in Canberra during those fires. Was anyone in Canberra at that time? Yeah, you guys experienced the first proven fire tornado. And because of that fire tornado, it was just like a normal, you know, those you see in the movies and the wind coming down? It did the same thing. A huge column of fire would come down, burn two or three houses, jump, miss the next few houses and burn the next few houses. And it was uh, American scientists who worked out how it happened. Because of four different fires burning and the wind coming through them, it created that kind of column. So all sorts of weird things happen. And so don't be too complacent if you live in the city. Don't move to Hobart. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> too late for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> We have a few minutes left for questions, so if anyone in the audience, there's a gentleman there who's um, ready to go. Do we have... We've got a mic coming to you. Uh, I'm a bit worried that Hobart could burn down and Geordie doesn't have a fire station. <laughs> um, well, we love our environment, and Sydney in particular, surrounded by a green belt. We're sitting here surrounded by nature. Any advice about how we balance the need for hybrid patched burning and control of fire that can go wild with our natural instinct to want to keep nature the way it is today? Well, there are lots of ways to, uh, to reintroduce fire, and this is where I think looking back at the past, Aboriginal peoples uh, around the world, uh, how did they do it for, you know, uh, Homo sapiens seem to uh, live with uh, fire pretty successfully for a couple hundred thousand years, and it's only the last 200 years uh, that we've, we've decided we can't. So there are lots of ways to do it. You, you operate with the system. Uh, you don't fight it. Uh, when It's a kind of fire foraging. The model that we've, we've had developed in, in most of the developed world is that you designate a space and time what the conditions are, what your prescription is, what your goals are, and then you have this big checklist. Everything has to be lined up. Well, that's a formula for failure. Any one item off the checklist, you shut it down, but there's no way to scale it back up. So you've got to be much more opportunistic and nimble. You've got to, in effect, be on the landscape, taking advantage of it, burning small patches, and then you build out more patches, and then you, you burn against those patches. There are lots of ways you can do it if you choose to do it. Part of the problem is that, uh, particularly in European science, in European and British, uh, German and French, they're all awful. Uh, they've, well, they've so hated fire that, that we, we've lost uh, the capacities. 
uh, to do that. And so there's a very strong tradition of hostility to fire. And people find lots of excuses not to burn. And any one of those is enough to shut it down. But then you, you fall further behind. We're burning more and more deliberately each year in the United States, and we're falling behind what our goal is. The only way we're going to get the fires that we need is by working with wildfires. Can I just sort of, I mean, also the, the, our southern forests are often now so desiccated yeah. that, um, and there's the same politics of burning. Nobody knows what percentage to burn. And also, I mean, it seems we, we don't really know what the effects will be on these uh, landscapes, which are often, you know, in really bad way. I agree. And uh, it may be that you need to do some thinning. You may need to intervene. You may need to mechanically do things, may wood chip. You may do other things to change it, to get it into a shape that will accept the kind of fire you want to start it going. I don't know the particulars yeah. of, your, of your forest, yeah. but I, I'm pretty confident that if you don't start something fairly soon, it is just going to be incinerated in a way that is not, it will not recover right. environmentally. I just got time, I think, for one more question. There's a lady at the back there in the purple. <laughs> we'll try and get to you, madam. Fascinating panel. Thank you, everyone. My question's for Chloe, though. Chloe, what led you, if you don't mind sharing, to writing this book? And in essence, what do you think you walked away finding out? Well, it, was, it just seemed incomprehensible to me that somebody could deliberately set uh, a firestorm and, and in, certainly in those conditions. And um, I feel that I um, learnt a lot about um, neurodiversity. Um, Brendan was diagnosed with, with autism. Um, and, you know, fire psychologists often say that... Um, for autistic fire setters, there's actually sort of a whole other set of processes going on in terms of uh, what the you know the stimulation of the flames and um, and a sort of different set of con you know idea of consequences and and compulsions. Um, I feel like I learned about uh, the intersection of a post-industrial world and and our natural environment and how they came to come together and. Um, I've learned a lot from reading Stephen about our warming future and the, you know, the idea, I'm very struck by the idea that we are living in the piracine where we have to hold power companies, um, to account and, um, you know, also our governments who increasingly, you know, don't seem to want to move away from the bad fire of, um, of coal. The lady in front. There's a. Is there the same incidence of fire in South America and Africa as there is in North America and Australia? And Russia now. There is in Russia. Mm. That's for you, Stephen. So did, yeah, did you catch that, Stephen? It was, we, we, well, we, we, have the, we see the same problem in all the, the industrial world. Uh, we see the same border of urban sprawl meeting uh, the environment and giving rise. So uh, Cape Town has had serious fires. Uh, south of France has had serious fires. We're seeing in Portugal and Greece are becoming cinders, basically. But we've also imported the eucalypts, haven't we? Well, 
I have to say the eucalypts are not much liked outside of Australia. Yeah. I'm sorry to say that. <laughs> the Portuguese hate it. Yeah. Uh, well, because none of their native animals and things grow in it, can yeah. feed in it. So it's just an alien infestation for their regard. And then it, it gasoline, sparks all these fires. Trees, yeah. yeah, and you know, in California we've got, they love, they love the appearance of the eucalypts, but of course it's very devastating. I've seen parts of Berkeley uh, that have burned three times in the last century. Same house has burned three times, and you know they just build it up again. I mean, you come at some point. This is a fire climax community, and after it burns, it just regrows and burns again. Um, but that's that's a, a peculiar circumstance. The others we're seeing it all over in Russia. Russia has lost control of its landscape entirely, and of its forestry bureau and the rest. And they, yeah, Russia is another good good example of of the the two fire zones because so much of the in european russia is is burning in the peat and uh, areas that have been mined um for power and now now they can't get rid of it you have to flood it basically mm-hmm. i think we're at the end and we need to i need to shut up <laughs> I, w- I wish you wish you wouldn't <laughs> um, just before we go i know we'll get kicked out in a minute i'd just like to make a presentation to my wonderful panel members and Geordie who's run this panel. As deputy Penny, captain of you're going to get a new fire truck, Geordie. <laughs> now, I know Yanks love baseball caps. And, uh, <laughs> so, Steve, that's yours. Uh, thanks, mate. <laughs> you're around the garden, that's yours. Oh, oh, thanks so much. <laughs> that's yours. They are now honorary members, and when they turn 65 and have had a serious you know, medical procedure, they can join our brigade. <laughs> I should mention too, I don't write books about fire. I write books very much like uh, Wilbur Smith, Bernard Cornwell, that type of thing. So that's my latest release. Uh, thank you. Hopefully these three will be signing afterwards so you can beard them in the queue if you have any other questions. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks, Jordi. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.